Hello and welcome to Messages at BBC. In these messages, you'll hear from professors, staff, guest speakers, as well as students. These messages were spoken and recorded on campus at Boise Bible College. If you'd like to check out Boise Bible College, please see our website at boisebible.edu. Well, good morning. It's good to be here with you guys today. Uh, My name is Justin McMurdy, as Cody mentioned, and I graduated from here in 2002, so this place has changed quite a bit. I got a chance to teach uh, First and Second Thessalonians last semester, so that was great. But I am excited to be here today because I really love this topic, actually, this idea of gospel and surveying that, looking at that through Scripture, as you guys have, are going to go through that this semester. And I'm excited to be able to talk about how, really, in so many ways, the gospel is really rooted in the creation story, and we're going to delve into that a little bit. But today, as I was thinking about this idea of good news and how to start this, I was actually thinking of an incident that happened in my life. So first of all, how many of you guys here are, are skiers or snowboarders? Anybody? Not many. Okay, great. So that's, it's a good thing that I put this picture up here. So basically, if you haven't been skiing or snowboarding before, what you do, of course, to get to the top of the mountain is you sit on a chairlift, a ski lift. And so this is a, a triple here, but there's, it might even be a quad. I'm not sure, but um, you, there's different sizes. But what happens, I was always a skier. I wasn't a snowboarder, but you end up basically in a long line of people and you push yourself forward. And what ends up happening is right out ahead of you, when you get towards the front of the line, you have people ahead of you and the chair comes around in front of you because they're spaced out and it goes to pick them up. And then you're supposed to push yourself out next in line and then a chair will come and pick you up. Well, I used to ski a lot when I was younger, when I was uh, in my high school years. I wasn't like awesome. I wasn't going to make the Olympics or anything, but I was pretty good. And so I really enjoyed it. And I used to go with my friends. I grew up over in Pocatello. How many of you guys here know Pocatello? Have ever been there? I'm glad that many of you haven't been there. It's not a great place, but uh, I, I loved it you know, while I was growing up. So there was two places we could ski. There was Pebble Creek Ski Area or there was Pomerel. Pomerel is in the middle of the state of Idaho, and so we would go skiing there. So one day, I was about 16 or 17, and I was there with some friends, and I was actually in line with my friend Shane Escabel. And at that point, I actually, I had hair. Uh, I didn't have gray hair everywhere. Uh, I was skinnier, kind of like when I met my wife. If I would have met her the way I look now, I would have never gotten her. But, you know, I basically, I, I wasn't, you know, uh, your picture of absolute beauty, you know, for the male form or whatever, but I was a decent looking guy. And so I basically wanted to impress some ladies and there were some good looking ladies there. Now, I was actually thinking and looking, we used to, you know, say babes, hot chicks, but I'm 45, I'm getting old now. So I was kind of looking up a list. I don't mean to demean women, by the way, but I was looking up a list here uh, earlier today about like what, you know, in modern parlance, what you would call, you know, a good looking young lady. And so an interesting one that I saw, hopefully it doesn't have a bad connotation, but is decent Rita. I don't know if you've ever heard that before, but there was a couple of decent Ritas ahead of us. And I thought, you know what, we're just going to kind of get the swagger on. We're going to try to impress these ladies. So me and my friend Shane Escabel are standing in line and, you know, we're talking loud. I had probably five or six buddies with me that day. We're talking loud. We're, we're trying to do things that imp- we think would impress ladies. None of it did because girls are like, this is stupid. Why are you being loud and annoying? You know, but we thought loud and annoying was the way to their hearts. So a couple of decent readers ahead of me here. And I'm not really paying attention. I'm just trying to kind of be as cool as I can be, which is not very. So I'm basically in line and I thought that I had seen the chair pass in front of me to go pick up the two young ladies ahead of me. And so I ended up pushing myself forward and I was looking back at my friend Shane and I was like, why aren't you pushing yourself forward? It's our turn. And he's looking at me with this look on his face like, dude, you are such an idiot. 
which I was, actually. And so he's looking at me, and I'm like, oh, something's wrong. Well, I turn around, and I realize the two young ladies I was trying to impress are still in their position to get picked up by the chair. It's coming around, and now there's three people for two spots. And so it's not a good situation. I'm looking over to the lift operator for help. He's in there, you know, sleeping, smoking pot. I don't know what he's doing. He's not paying any attention. He doesn't turn off the lift. And so now it's coming around, and I have to try to get out of the way. I don't know what to do. And so what I ended up trying to do, it wasn't the greatest solution, but I dropped to my side, and I thought, you know what, if I'm laying on my side, the chairlift might just go right over the top of me, get the ladies. It's going to be embarrassing, but it's not going to be as bad as it could be. Well, what happened was the guy over there, he's still smoking dope. He's not turning things off. I lay down, and instead of the chair going over the top of me, it now has caught my shoulder, and I'm being pushed forward towards these girls as a giant snowplow. And he's not turning off the lift. Now, if you're not that familiar with skiing, what ends up happening when you get picked up is there's usually a little lift or a little lip at the beginning, and it kind of goes upward, and then there's a drop-off into like thick snow or a snowdrift. And so here I am, this slow-motion nightmare, pushing forward, pushing forward, and I ended up snow plowing these two girls that I wanted to impress off into a snowdrift. They're tangled up, their skis are everywhere, they're cursing my name, my friends are like, you are riding up by yourself, we don't want to see you again, we're not going to associate with you. It was a terrible, terrible, terrible moment. But that horrible moment of embarrassment really, in some ways, fed into a little bit of a larger story that I believed, in a way, when I was younger. I don't know if any of you have experienced this, but um, my dad, actually, I grew up in a preacher's home, so that's a whole other story if you want to know how that went. It didn't go very well for most of the first years of my life, but God grabbed a hold of me later. That was awesome. But I grew up in a preacher's home, but my dad was the first Christian in his home, in, in his family, really, forever. And so he grew up with a dad, my grandpa, he's dead now, my grandpa is, but he, he grew up with a grandpa that was, and a dad that was really not that nice to him. And so there was a lot of brokenness in my dad's life growing up. And even though he was the first Christian, when he, you know, had me and started trying to lead a godly family, when you have things like abuse or, or, or darkness or things that happen in your past, sometimes that carries forward. And so one of the things that that, one of the ways I believe that carried forward was my dad would talk about this thing called the McMurdy curse. And so McMurdy, that's my last name. It actually comes from a, a Scottish word meaning seagoing warrior, in case you cared. But, uh, you know, it's just little tidbits here that are of interesting things to put out. But so my dad would talk about the McMurdy curse. And the idea was is that, you know, we had bad luck and, and maybe just things weren't going to turn out for us. And when bad things happened, it was almost to be expected. And, you know, it was a joke, but really it packed a punch in my life because in a lot of ways, I think I took that in and, and I started to see my story as maybe not being a good story, not, not at the core of it. I mean, there was good things that happened. I had fun in certain ways, but maybe at the core, there's a bad story. And I wanted to think about that as we begin discussing this idea of gospel, because I think it's a really great question for us to ask ourselves, where does the gospel start? Where does the gospel begin? And I want to suggest to you that ultimately, we all have moments that can make us feel like our stories, the lives we live, are under the weight of a curse. And sometimes even the way that we start or we present or we live out the gospel, it starts with curse instead of blessing. And I want to show you how I think this plays out. So if you go to Genesis chapter 3, 
we read some things about the fall. So everything was good in the garden, but then this happens. And you can see this picture here. Sorry for the nudity. If that bothers you, I apologize. This is actually a great work of art. It's from the Sistine Chapel. Michelangelo, he's giving the picture of creation. And we all know the story. Uh, There's good creation. God creates Adam and Eve. There are happy, naked vegans running around the garden. Everything is good. There's no shame, nothing bad happening. And then the serpent comes. They believe a lie. They sin. And then they're cast out of the garden. And what we see in this story is that, you know, things were good, but now there is a fall. And what ends up happening is some negative, negative, negative things come out of that. Genesis chapter 3, verse 7, God basically is looking down on this. The serpent has deceived them. They eat the forbidden fruit. Verse 7, then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Now there's shame. Now there's a lack of freedom. They've got to cover up their shame. They're ashamed of who they are. They know they're exposed and they don't want to be exposed. So they try self-salvation. They make some fig leaves to cover themselves up. You go on in the story and we, we can figure out or we can determine that God used to walk in the cool of the day and have this unbroken relationship with Adam and with Eve. And now God's looking for them in the garden. And basically God says, where are you? Verse 10, Adam answers, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. So we have all these terrible things happening, and I don't want to minimize sin in any way, shape, or form, because absolutely at the core of the gospel story is this redemption that has to come through the cross of Jesus Christ. But I want you to know, this isn't where the gospel starts. It doesn't start with bad news. It doesn't start with shame. It doesn't start with guilt. The gospel story that God is telling is rooted in, and it starts with the goodness of of his creation. We can get stuck in Genesis 3. We can start our gospel message, our gospel proclamation here. We can get so fixated on the negative of the fall and all that came out of that that we lose sight of the fact that the gospel is rooted in what God did in creation. And I want to look at some of that with you here today because if we get stuck here, we miss out on Genesis 1 and 2. And it's in Genesis 1 and 2 that the overflowing love of God comes into his world as he creates out of his overflowing life. Father, Son, Spirit, this life, this community of love that is so full, so bursting. God didn't have to create. God wasn't up in heaven, you know, crying because he didn't have any playmates. God was full and happy and joyous. And out of the overflow of his life, he bursts forth this good story, this story of creation. The gospel begins there. Now, I want to suggest, and we're gonna, I'm going to look at a few things with you here in a moment, but... When we go to Genesis chapter 1 and 2, sometimes I think we ask the wrong questions. Sometimes we ask questions like this, how old is the earth? Did God create in six literal 24-hour days? And there's all sorts of things like that. And I'm not trying to deny, nor do I deny in any way, the special creation of God, but that is not what Genesis 1 and 2 is talking about. It is not interested in the mechanics of creation, I would suggest to you. Genesis 1 and 2 is creating a framework for us to see God's glory, his goodness, and the gospel story that he wants to tell in the world. The primary purpose of the first chapters of the Bible is to root the entire story of creation in the good news that there's one God, the sun's not God, stars aren't God, sky's not God, animals aren't God, all other gods are false gods. There's one God, Yahweh, and he is creating a world where ultimately There's this idea of what we read in the New Testament sometimes called shalom. There's wholeness. There is peace. There's flourishing. 
There's a world where the goodness of God is there. The goodness and freedom of humanity in their unfallen state is there. And there's this beautiful story where God wants to see his glory shine. And it starts out with a good story. And that's the root of the gospel. So I want to just look at a couple of things with you here in Genesis chapter 1. And then we're going to spend a little bit more time in the summary verse in Genesis chapter 2. But first of all, I want you to read, and if you have your Bible, if you have your phone, if you have your tablet, however you want to look at this, I want to just go ahead and read a couple of the first verses of Genesis chapter 1 to you, and we'll, we'll look at some important things that we need to notice here. Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now, we could very literally translate that God created the skies and the land. Um, that's very literally what it talks about. Sometimes when we talk about, you know, in our Christian conception of heaven, uh, we talk about heaven, we think of God who's somewhere off beyond Pluto. But that's not what it really is talking about here. It's talking about the fact that God created everything that was, the skies and the land. The first thing we need to notice about the gospel story is it's rooted in the creator God and everything comes from him. And he's over everything. This summary statement clues us into the fact that everything comes from God and that he is a good God. And then number two, let's look at verse two. It says this, Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Uh, we actually have here this concept or this idea of tohu vabohu. That's these words that get translated in number two, formless and empty. The, the earth was formless and empty. There was nothing there, and there was nothing in it. Sometimes, I don't know how many of you guys like the Bible Project videos or look at those sometimes. Not many of you, some of you. Okay, there's a great, there are great stuff out there. Check it out. But Tim Mackey has this wonderful translation where he talks about that the earth was wild and waste. It's this idea that chaos is reigning. And what Genesis chapter 1 is about is not so much about the mechanics of creation. It's about the fact that there's a creator God and he comes in to tame chaos to show his glory and to put in motion a good story. He comes to form and to fill the world. I want you to look at this next slide here. It's a chart, and it really talks about how Genesis chapter 1 is this idea that God conquers chaos. There's a very ancient Near Eastern concept here. We're not as familiar with it when we look at the Bible. We sometimes look at things from a very Western perspective. In the ancient Near East, they looked at the world and the, the whole universe as a very wild place that was ruled and reigned over by chaos. And yet Genesis chapter 1 tells us that there's a powerful God that conquers chaos. And he comes in and he takes this empty nothingness and he forms it. And then he fills it. And so really, God conquers chaos. It's the forming of realms. We see, if we were to go through the rest of Genesis 1, day 1, he gives the realm of light. Really, the light that's there is the glory of God. He separates day from night, night and dark, day and light, and the light is there is from him. Day 2, he forms this, this chaos, this tohu. He conquers it, and he gives us the realm of the waters, the waters above and the waters below. Day 3, he gives us the realm of land and vegetation. So he takes this wildness, this, this formlessness, and he brings it into order. And then he fills it. He fills it with good things. Day four, he overcomes or he fills the realms. He overcomes bohu, this idea of, of waste or of a lack of filling. Day four, he gives us the sun, the moon, and the stars, the heavenly bodies. Day five, he gives us the air and the sea creatures. And then day six, he gives us the land animals, and he gives us mankind. Ultimately, at the pinnacle of this, is man and woman created in his image to represent God, to have this human flourishing, this shalom, this wonderful goodness. 
And so Genesis chapter 1 really sets a framework in place where we can understand and see and appreciate the glory of God. Because ultimately what he's done in creating the sky and the land, the heavens and the earth, is he's put in place a temple, a temple to display his glory. And that's a good story. These two big ideas help us to understand the big purpose of the rest of creation. First of all, there is one God, and he's the only God and the only creator. Second of all, he brings order into chaos as he speaks his powerful word. And we need to start there because we need to appreciate the glory of what God has done, the goodness of what God has done, because the gospel story starts with creation. What God speaks is good. He's brought order into chaos and kicked off a good story. And so what I want you to do now, and we're going to have these up on the uh, screen, but I want you to go ahead and read with me Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And this is a summary statement of everything that's come before in chapter 1. If you go to the next slide, I'm going to highlight some different things, but let's read this first of all together. So verse 1 of chapter 2, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day he had rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. The first three verses of Genesis chapter 2 help root us in the gospel purposes that God brought about in Genesis chapter 1. First thing I want you to notice, and it's highlighted here, the heavens and the earth were completed. God didn't mess up. God didn't fail to complete what he wanted there to be in place. He completed the work of creation. He created everything and he completed his creation work, this temple for his glory. Next thing, if you go to the next slide, I want you to notice this number seven keeps popping up. Verse two, by the seventh day, God had finished. So on the seventh day, he rested. Then God blessed the seventh day. This number seven, you'll probably know this from your studies. If you don't, I'll tell you. If it's redundant, sorry. But it's a great thing to know. The number seven is a super important number in ancient, the ancient Near Eastern world, and it's super important in the biblical world. Seven represents completeness. It represents wholeness. It represents order. It represents fullness. It represents, in many ways, shalom. And seven pops up all over the place in Genesis 1 and now in Genesis 2. In Genesis 1 and 2, we see that there are seven days of creation. There are seven pronouncement that's, pronouncements that it's good. There are, in the very first verse of Genesis, Genesis 1-1, seven words, if you count them in Hebrew. If you go to verse 2, there's seven times two words. There's 14 words. When you get down here, if you read this in Hebrew, when it talks about God resting on the seventh day and this idea and concept of Sabbath, there's seven times three words. There's 21 Hebrew words that describe this perfect seventh day. Seven tips us off to the fact that God completed a creation that was whole and complete and good. And then the last thing I want you to notice is this. God, verse 2, God had finished the work. Jump down to the end of that. He rested from all his work. Verse 3, then he blessed the seventh day, and again he rested. It's, of course, this concept of Sabbath. But Sabbath is not just something fun for Jews to do on Saturday so they don't have to work and they can, you know, have special meals and special ceremonies. This concept of Sabbath rest is this idea that the God who created everything has created a good world that is full and he's got a good story to tell in the world and the rest that he has as he sits back and now rests from his creation is the rest that we're called into and we can have a life of rest, a life of wholeness, a life of peace, and a life of flourishing. The gospel story is rooted in a God who invites us, his image bearers, to enjoy his rest. And so I want to root you in that because when we start at Genesis chapter 3, we can sometimes come along 
and gloss over all the good that God has created for this world to be, all the good that his gospel story is, because ultimately what God's telling in creation is a good story. He wants to reconnect the world with that good story. The whole story of the Bible is creation and then ultimately new creation. And sometimes we just jump to Genesis chapter 3 and we slap people around. We do a little Bible thumping over the head. We're like, you're a sinner. Let's kick a little dirt on you over here and basically be done with you. And then let's get to the gospel. But that's not where the gospel starts. It starts with the goodness that God has. And so the bottom line I really have for you guys today is this idea in the next slide if you want to go there. It's this idea that all manner of things shall be well. I want to tell you about this lady, Julian of Norwich. So I love church history. I love figures and characters from church history. Julian of Norwich is a really cool lady, and she actually has a unique story, and it really has a lot to tell us for today. So she was a woman that lived from 1343 to 1416, maybe even into 1417. And she had this really unique role in her community. She ultimately is remembered as a Christian mystic, but how she started out was she started out being an anchoress. And it's not something that we do in modern church history. I don't think we should make this a position in our churches. It's not a good volunteer role for anybody. But as an anchoress, what ended up happening was they would go through a community and they would look for someone that they felt like God had put his special blessing on and then they would choose out that person to go and be an anchorite or an anchoress, and they would be sealed up into a cell or a room. And so really from a young age, Julian of Norwich got this honor to be an anchoress, and she was sealed up in a cell. There was a little window there where people could talk to her. She could get food. They could take out the chamber pot. I mean, it's not a great life, but she basically was then supposed to live out this, this identity of being an intercessor for the community, of being somebody that would intercede between God and the people and ask blessing and ask salvation and ask hope on them. And so this story may sound like not a very good story, but I want to keep telling you a little bit more about her story because it's fascinating. So she's locked up in this cell. I found an icon here where she just basically is holding a crucifix and, and you know, it's a picture of her. A lot of the icons that she has that you'll find of her have her actually stroking a cat or having a cat on her lap. So if you're a cat person, that might make you happy. If you hate cats, that might make you unhappy. But she basically is this woman who's alone with her cat praying for people. And yet she also then, in this solitary existence, had the burden of living in the time of the Great Plague, of the Black Plague. And so in 1373, at the age of 30, the plague was ravaging Norwich, England, where she was from, ravaging really the whole world of Europe. And she ended up actually becoming deathly ill. In fact, to the point where the community thought that she was going to die and that she wasn't going to make it. And so they're basically about ready to kind of give her the last rites. But during this kind of near-death experience, she had some powerful visions and some powerful encounters that she got from Jesus. She recovered, and then she ultimately wrote these down, and she, they're called the Revelations of Divine Love. It's actually the very oldest book that's written in English by a female, by a woman. And she has a shorter and a longer version. But in one of these times of disease and upheaval, after she came out of it, in one of these visions when she was going through it, she actually had a vision where she asked Jesus a question. And her question was, what about sin? What about all this terrible stuff? What about the bad news? What about all that? And here's what she says that Jesus said to her. Jesus responded to her in her vision, and he, here's what she wrote down. All shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. And she repeats or uh, reports, she said, this was said so tenderly, without blame of any kind toward me or anybody else. 
This really moves me actually to hear what she said because it's really the same idea that I'm wanting you to understand. We need in our world people who bring hope and who bring a good story. I'm not trying to minimize sin. We have to deal with human sin. Repentance is absolutely necessary. We don't just get to come to Jesus and have him as our savior and then go on being who we want to be as self-ruled people. We have to repent and turn to Christ as both Lord and savior. I'm not minimizing that. But have you ever thought about the fact that our world desperately, desperately, desperately needs a message of hope? In the words of the Apostle Paul, in the letter to the Romans, he says something incredibly interesting in Romans chapter 1, verses 17 and onward. He's talking about the depravity of humanity. But he makes this statement, he says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men as they suppress the truth and their unrighteousness. I'm convinced that while we do have to deal with sin when we talk to people about the gospel, we do have to deal with the bad news. Most people actually don't need a lot of convincing that they've got shame, guilt, a lack of hope, and a lack of meaning in their lives. We need to address that, but what we need to do is we need to come to a world that is really, really, really hurting and really lacking hope and we need to come to them with a good story that there's creation and there's new creation, that God wants to reconnect you, me, and everybody that will come to him by the drawing of the Holy Spirit with the good news about Jesus Christ, that he is the conquering hero. And God wins. God wins in his story. Satan doesn't win. Sin doesn't win. Death doesn't win. The creation doesn't even go away. When we go to Revelation, we read about the creation being made new and there's not going to be any tears or any weeping or any crying and we see this per picture of perfection. If you go there and you look at the Greek terms for new, it doesn't mean that God's going to wipe out the creation we're in and then just cast it away and start completely over. He's going to completely renew this creation, free it from its bondage. He's going to give it to those of us who know Jesus Christ. We're going to reign with him and we're going to be restored to the goodness of creation. And the gospel message like that needs to go out to our world. And so I don't know where you're at today. Some of you might gonna be, go out and be youth ministers. Some of you might be worship ministers. Some of you might take a Bible certificate and go out and be volunteers in the church. Some of you might be missionaries in another country. Some of you might do all kinds of work. But wherever you're at, I wanna encourage us to think about the fact that the gospel is a story about the need for Jesus to come and die and suffer under a curse so we don't have to but at its very heart, it's this idea of connecting us with the idea that all manner of things shall be well. COVID doesn't win. Racial strife doesn't win. Satan doesn't win. Democrats and Republicans don't win. God wins. God sets things right. And it's a story that he's been telling from the very beginning. And it's rooted in this great and wonderful truth that God's creation purpose is that all manner of things shall be well. Will you pray with me? <clears throat> Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace. I thank you for this group of students. I ask and pray, Jesus Christ, that you would just, just help them, Lord God, as they go out in their various ministries, the various paths that they're going to be walking in. I pray, Lord God, that you would help them to be people of hope. We do, Lord God, of course, need to talk about sin, but we also need to remember that you are telling a good story. And that if we come under your protection, if we are filled with your spirit, if we're filled with your life, if we're reconnected with your purpose, you want good things for us. You want good things for your creation. You want the overflowing of your amazing life 
to be what we experience and what we bring to others. And we can be kingdom people. And we can echo the message that you came to preach, Jesus, which is repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The reign and the rule of God is broken in. Help us to be those people that are rooted in a good story and we tell that to our world that needs hope. Thank you for this opportunity, God, to speak. I pray, God, that you would just bless each of these students as they go out from here. Thank you, God, for the good story you're telling and help us to reconnect with that. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. God bless you guys. Thank you. Thank you for listening today. Boise Bible College exists to raise up leaders for the church where we value scholarship, humility, innovation, and community. For more information about Boise Bible College, please see boisebible.edu.